He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, nō mai harumai ki te au hurehanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Kraken Cannon tēnei. This week, we're featuring an episode from our friends in the science team at the ABC in Australia. Strange Frontiers is a seven-part series in which producer and presenter Carl Smith travels to some incredible places around the world. Hard-to-reach research sites, off-limit laboratories, and, for this episode, one truly remarkable construction site. In this episode, Carl visits the ETA complex in the south of France, where scientists are building a machine to recreate the reaction that powers the sun. Nuclear fusion is a holy grail for researchers seeking clean energy, free from greenhouse gas emissions and toxic nuclear waste. But is it just a pipe dream? Let's join Carl to find out. An evening in Provence in the south of France sounds delightfully peaceful. Among rolling fields of lavender or gently lit idyllic villages, you might enjoy a glass or two of the region's famous wine. But in one pocket, right between Marseille, Avignon and Nice, the mood in this usually calm countryside has recently shifted. Late at night, just beyond the city of Aix-en-Provence, there's been a string of eerie midnight processions. Roads are closed, and under the watchful eye of dozens of stern gendarmes and the glow of their police lights, semi-trailers creep through these deserted streets. They're loaded with enormous, house-sized objects of every shape and size. Their destination, hidden behind rows of fences, fields and forests, is an enormous construction site. The parts they're carrying are destined for a science experiment with the potential to change the world. An extremely expensive, powerful and complex machine designed to recreate the conditions inside the sun here on Earth. It's so hot that the particles do not even radiate in the visible spectrum. You can't even see it with your eyes. And today, we're going into the heart of this experiment to stand right where this immensely powerful reaction will take place. We would be basically in the center of the reactor. <laughs> so you would like to make your way out of it as quick as possible. You are actually lucky that you are standing here because in five years from now, there's almost no possibility anymore to come here. Hey, I'm Carl Smith, and this is Strange Frontiers, a short series about those working at the frontiers of science in hard-to-reach, off-limits and unusual corners of the Earth. This time, a trip to ITER, or as it's pronounced here in southern France, ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, to visit the largest fusion reactor ever created, a device that could completely overhaul how we power our lives. Our guide today is Dr. Tom Walters, a calm, slender and genial Belgian, trained as a physicist with a specialty in plasma. Hey Tom, how's it going? Hello, good morning. What is this enormous building surrounded by very big cranes here? We are looking at the ether complex, the place where we will recreate the conditions of the sun on Earth to harness the energy of the sun. The promise of fusion power has always been immense. Unlike current nuclear power plants, which generate power by splitting atoms, a process called fission, fusion aims to fuse two atoms together, which can also release energy. It's the reaction sizzling away at the centre of the sun. 
The upside of fusing atoms instead of splitting them is that it wouldn't produce the same long-lived radioactive waste. It also promises to be a less risky process, and it could run continuously without any greenhouse gas emissions. Scientists have already shown fusion works in experimental reactors, about 20 of them around the globe. However, in these prototypes, the energy you get out of the reaction doesn't make up for all the energy that went in. The goal of ITER, or ITER, is to show that a sustained fusion reaction can produce a tenfold return on power, ten times as much out as goes in to kickstart the reaction. If they can show this, they say that would pave the way for fusion to power our future. It's never been done before on such a large scale, on actually an industrial scale. For the first time here at ITER, we are trying to accomplish this. To make that happen, 35 member states have invested billions of euros and employed thousands of staff to create a fusion reactor far bigger than humans have ever attempted before, here in the tranquil countryside of Provence. So size matters, and based on the present experiments we have seen, if we scale it up, we will get to the conditions that are needed to make more energy than we put in. Well, let's head in and stand inside, where hopefully in just a few years' time, this fusion reaction will take place. OK, let's go. This site is enormous. We're currently waiting for our security detail at the main gates to the complex. It's buzzing with hundreds of staff from all around the world, workers and scientists coming in and out. Construction began on ITER in 2007, when fields and hills were flattened. Ten years ago, I could hear the blasts making the plateau, so they had to remove some hills to level some other parts. It's still a construction site, and we're only allowed inside for a quick visit, so we don't upset the flow of people and trucks and equipment. While we're waiting to go through the security gates, Dr Walters points out the main building that will house the heart of this complex, the fusion reactor. This big building that you see, one part is the assembly hall, where we put big components together, and the second part is the most important part, that's the tokamak pit. The tokamak pit is our destination today. Tokamak is a Russian acronym describing the design of the reactor device at the heart of ITER. We can't see it from here because it's deep inside this big building. Everything around us, the supporting infrastructure, the security, the staff, even a satellite city for workers with a school and other amenities, is here to make this tokamak a reality. So what is a tokamak? A tokamak, it's the name that we give to this particular concept of a fusion device. It's like a donut-shaped device. A shiny, metallic and hollow donut-shaped device that's 30 metres across and almost 30 metres tall. The tokamak is kind of like a massive thermal bottle that will keep an extremely hot and violent fusion reaction focused and contained using enormous magnets. And these magnets are there to keep our fusion plasma just in the right shape for the reactions to occur. This might sound like a gadget from the distant future, but for a plasma physicist, it's pretty standard. As you might imagine, generating and containing this reaction is very complex. Decades of experiments and years of planning have gone into this very big tokamak. Being able to go right into the heart of a fusion reactor is a rare experience, but that's exactly what we're doing today. We'll only have minutes inside to see where the fusion plasma will be created and to hear how all of this is going to work. We're whisked into the complex, accompanied at all times by our escort. Inside, it's as chaotic as any enormous worksite, but with way more security checks. 
the biggest work is the assembly now of the tokamak, and we will actually have a look at it. Nothing like this has ever been attempted. And it feels monumental, driving through this massive worksite packed with swarms of staff. It's about two times the size to the largest existing one, but it means that we can go ten times at least in power. We arrived just near the building housing the tokamak. The giant rectangular block soars overhead. We walk up to its walls, a jigsaw of concrete slabs, each as big as a car. Feels fortified, and it probably should be, to keep the reactor inside safe, and maybe to keep us safe from it. Through another security gate, we enter an anti-room. So, overall clothes, we put this white overall. Looks like the thing that you wear in a clean room. And then we go through to the assembly hall. Let's go. This is where all the big components are brought in. This is easily the size of an airport hangar, but maybe twice or three times as high. And there are enormous cranes to lift some of these very big components. Exactly. So you can compare it maybe with the shipyard. You have these huge cranes. They are lifting heavy things, more than a thousand tons. Nothing in this hall is dulled with age or use. It's all shiny and new. So the assembly hall looks like a set for the kind of sci-fi film that features enormous mechanized robots. Workers are busy moving parts, animatedly discussing checklists on clipboards, or running diagnostic tests on the sensitive bits. These staff are from all over the world. Because this project was born in the 1980s during the Cold War as a form of international collaboration that would bring major industrialized nations together, working towards the shared goal of sustainable and safe power generation. So very early on, our predecessors realized that fusion was too big for one nation. It's too complicated. The devices that you need are too large. So it was decided to work together on this one. As we make our way past pipes, scaffolds and towers of computers, Dr. Walters says, much like this project being too large for one nation, it's far too big for one person to give a full snapshot of everything that's happening here. So he pulls aside one of the coordinators of ITER, Vincent Hanser, who's been busy turning all the shiny metal components in this room into a functional fusion reactor. He's a friendly, smiley Frenchman with a bit of stubble, a blue hard hat, a crisp light blue shirt, and a very busy job. We pre-assemble 10 million components here in this assembly hall building, from small parts to really big parts to what we call the sector module. Just behind him, the outer shell of one of these sector modules is suspended in midair, held by an enormous crane. It looks like a segment of an orange, and nine of these segments or modules will be brought in separately on the midnight convoys and then combined to create the donut-shaped tokamak further inside this giant building. We assembled this sector module before they are lifted and put in position in the tokamak kit. You can hear the sounds of the workers busily flitting around it on scaffolds. It's an incredible scene, watching so many people and so many enormous components moving around this giant hall. I think it's a 15-storey building, 65 metres, or maybe the first level of the Eiffel Tower. Vincent Hanser is relaxed but energetic. His eyes are darting around the room while we're speaking. He helps coordinate some 3,000 people, with staff and parts coming in from all around the world. So we have different parts manufactured everywhere around the world, from South Korea or from America or from China. Then they are put on special boats. And then these boats 
all arrived in Marseille harbor and then from this point to the Eater site there is 65 kilometers and actually there is a special road and it takes about four nights to arrive here on site. Do you ever find it surreal working in these conditions? Yeah, yeah but especially with the size of the components is really impressive. When you see them on the paper or on the screen, it's one thing. When you see them in the assembly hall or in the pit, it's another thing. Clearly, it's really amazing to see all these big components. Vincent Hanser says he has to get back to directing the complex orchestra of people and parts behind us. So we say farewell and I head off again with Dr. Tom Walters, past the suspended segment of the Tokamak Donut and into a pressurized, plastic-lined white tunnel. This is to keep the purified air inside. We slip through plastic flaps at the end of the tunnel and out onto a viewing platform. Uh, now we are entering the Tokamak pit. The pit is a steel and concrete cylinder, several stories high. At the center of the room, the shiny donut is beginning to take shape in this loud, echoing hive of activity. There's a central pillar around which the Tokamak chamber will be built, sector by sector, orange segment by orange segment, to make the full donut. And one of these sectors or modules has just recently been installed. We walk right up to it. This is the first time that I see it myself. I'm so close. From here, it's even more impressive. Dr. Walters is smiling and he can't take his eyes off the segment. He's a largely theoretical physicist who models what the plasma will do in here. But he's now seeing all the theory and planning and big thinking of this project turn into something real and tangible and incredible. It is pretty mind-boggling. Where we're standing, humans are aiming to create one of the hottest parts of our galaxy and harness that immense power to fuel our built world. We would be basically in the center of the reactor. <laughs> so you would like to make your way out of it as quick as possible. Inside our donuts, we will have temperatures more than 100 million degrees Celsius, much hotter even than the center of the sun. You are actually lucky that you are standing here because in five years from now, there is almost no possibility anymore to come here. Okay, so we've heard a lot of big numbers and a lot of grand claims, but what exactly is going to happen here? How are they actually planning to recreate the conditions at the centre of our sun here? We will reduce the special conditions for fusion to occur, basically, which means we have a very high temperature, a very high-density plasma, a hot gas, basically, and we need to confine it for a very long time inside a volume. Right, so very high temperatures, plasma or hot gas, all confined in the shiny donut. Just three steps, that's a pretty simple recipe. No, not at all. So let's start by looking at the super hot gas, or plasma. What exactly is that? Well, our sun is a roiling, boiling mass of hot gas, and at its center is hot, dense plasma. Basically, the smallest raw atoms of the universe, hydrogen, are being ripped apart in there into their component parts, charged particles. The electrons are stripped from the atoms. So you have actually a soup or a gas of positive charged particles and negative charged electrons that are swirling around. A very spicy sounding soup. This tokamak will replicate that process of the sun to make plasma right here where we're standing. Using two isotopes of hydrogen, atoms of hydrogen with extra neutrons in their nucleus. We use deuterium, it's a hydrogen isotope. It's available in water. We use tritium, another hydrogen isotope that you can produce out of lithium. 
Then, as happens in the sun, the raw ingredients in this plasma soup fuse together, forming bigger helium atoms and releasing energy. But for any of this to happen, they need to kickstart the fusion reaction with the next step on his recipe, generating massive amounts of heat. For this, Eater's tokamak will use extremely high-powered electromagnetic waves. These zap the deuterium and tritium a bit like a microwave, heating them up in just the right way, based on previous reactor experiments. The end result is super-hot plasma that's burning away on its own, fusing the raw materials and releasing huge amounts of energy in the form of heat. It's so hot that the particles do not even radiate in the visible spectrum. You can't even see it with your eyes. Once this reaction is blazing away, Dr. Walters says it's pretty easy to convert that heat into power. This heat is dissipated to the walls of the reactor, and we can then recuperate this heat by circulating water. After that, you just send the heat through a turbine. This turbine drives a generator, and then you have electricity. The byproducts in this reaction are helium, created by fusing the hydrogen isotopes, and neutrons, subatomic particles that Dr. Tom Walters says will be contained in the reactor. One of the trickiest parts of fusion energy generation is making sure the energy that goes into making the plasma and fusing the hydrogen isotopes leads to much more heat coming out of this reaction. Other experimental reactors have been optimising this process, and some have even recently hit the so-called ignition point, where the plasma self-heats and sustains the reaction without an external source. Dr. Walters says these recent improvements alongside the immense scale of ETA's tokamak, means they're confident they can get that tenfold return on the energy they put in. But he points out that even if it is successful, ETA itself isn't planning to send electricity onto the grid, at least not through its initial experimental phase. To be clear, ETA will not yet harness this energy. It's a proof of concept that'll operate in short little bursts just to demonstrate a net positive reaction is possible opening up a pathway for industrial-scale fusion power generation. Okay, so a giant microwave, hydrogen isotopes turned into a super-hot gas or plasma, which fuses that hydrogen and releases heat. But you've probably noticed we're missing a step in Dr. Wouter's recipe. Confining this reaction in the tokamak. Dr. Wouter's works with dozens of scientists on this conundrum. The whole point of the tokamak is to keep the super-hot plasma from touching anything. Picture it like this. If we run with the donut analogy, the slightly crispy sugar-coated outside of the donut has layers specially designed to contain the reaction in a vacuum where the doughy innards of the donut would normally be. Because the plasma soup inside the vacuum is a bunch of churning charged particles, these can be repelled and held in the middle of the donut vacuum by an opposite electric charge created by giant electromagnets. To do that, we have magnetic field coils, which are going all around. The catch is that these field coils are at the absolute coldest temperature you can have, minus 270 degrees Celsius, uh, almost. Colder than the dark side of the moon. From the centre of the sun to the dark side of the moon, and then to room temperature, right here in the middle of southern France. They have a sense of poetry here at ETA. We go to these different temperature gradients over a distance of maybe five metres or so. So there you have it. A technique to create super hot gas or plasma contained using lots of clever tricks, 
but still generating heat that can be captured, all without melting the device that's creating it. The advantages of this technique is that you can have almost limitless energy. The only catch is, of course, that it's very difficult to achieve. But we can see we are making progress. We are really building this thing. And five to ten years from now, we will show that we will be able to do this. But of course, as we've learned with basically every other energy generation device, there are other catches we should consider. Unfortunately, our time standing in the middle of the world's biggest fusion reactor is up. Ready? Oh, we have to go? Yeah. We're asked to get out so that the work can continue here. Our escort hurries us back out through the work site, and we find a quiet place to perch near the main gates, looking out over a grove of trees. Okay, so thank you so much for showing me inside the very chaotic and busy tokamak. When will the first fusion reaction take place? So the first operation phase is called first plasma. Which was scheduled for late 2025, but has recently been pushed back slightly. The aim of this particular phase is to see if all the systems are all functioning. And before even these tests start, the remaining parts have to be assembled. And there will be layer upon layer of checks for the equipment. They'll also be making sure that kickstarting a fusion reaction here in southern France will be safe, starting with safeguards for natural disasters. So we are in a seismic area. Once in 100 years, there can be a severe earthquake. And each of the components is qualified for this and should withstand such a major earthquake. He says they're also prepared for fires and they're even prepared for planes. We are keeping the same level of safety standards as a nuclear power plant, basically. So indeed, we can keep the containment of the machine in case of a plane crashing into it. We don't want to motivate anyone to do this because it will end the project, but it will not harm this environment. That's the design feature. What is the worst that could happen if it was punctured by something like a plane or fire or whatever? If you would drill a hole in the reactor, it means that you breach the vacuum. The reactor will be filled immediately with air and this will stop the reaction. So basically this is immediately shut down, so it's inherently safe. So he says there's no catastrophic explosion or runaway chain reaction like we've seen in some nuclear fusion power plants. According to ITER, this is because there will only ever be a tiny amount of its fuel used in their reactions. And if anything other than this rare fuel gets into the vacuum, it'll just stop the reaction rather than feed it. If bomb material is released into your plasma, it will cool your plasma. So we need to keep these two things separated. If that vacuum is punctured, would there be any leaking of radioactive material? Yeah, that we cannot avoid. But the amount that we are talking about, it's grams, literally. So nothing compared to tons of material that you would have in a fission plant. So we are much safer. Also, the materials that we will leak, they are active for much shorter durations. What is the radioactive material that would leak out? I'm thinking mostly about tritium that will be leaked in the highest quantities. That's one of the hydrogen isotopes being fused in the reactor. It has a relatively short half-life of just over 12 years, meaning it wouldn't stick around contaminating things for ages. Of course, there is also activation of other materials in the vessel. What he's talking about here is the leftover neutron that's produced in the reaction, interacting with the material of the tokamak itself, irradiating some of it. I don't think personally that it will come to this, and if it would come to this, the amounts are really small. Under the strict supervision of the French nuclear authorities, they're adding layers of safety and containment for any eventuality. But a stream of neutrons irradiating a punctured tokamak would not be an insignificant problem. The average news article written about fusion seems to say either that it's catastrophically dangerous and scary recreating the conditions of the sun on Earth, 
Or the more hypey pieces say it's totally safe, no need to worry at all. But it seems the reality is actually somewhere in between. Compared to fission nuclear plants though, it is definitely an enticing alternative. However, we still haven't touched on the big issue that most people have with fusion power. How we'll source the raw materials needed for the reaction. Those isotopes of hydrogen that get fused together. So deuterium you can find in seawater, in any glass of water, there is a certain amount of deuterium. So deuterium is abundantly available. It's tritium, the second part, which is a bit more complicated. This will be produced out of lithium. This isotope, tritium, is rare in nature. The total supply is estimated by ITER to be just 20 kilograms in total on the planet. And making it out of lithium is a complicated process. But Dr. Wouters says they're working on a wonderfully convenient solution. He says it's possible to make tritium from lithium using ITER's fusion reactor in what's known as tritium breeding, where a leftover neutron produced in a fusion reaction hits an atom of lithium on the wall of the reactor, making tritium. There are four different concepts that we will be testing to produce our tritium on site. So in the end, the idea is to have at least one tritium produced for one tritium consumed in the plasma to have a closed fuel cycle. It should be possible, but there's a difference doing these things on paper and actually doing it. And in ITER, we will actually do it. We will show that it is possible. Despite how calm Dr. Walters sounds and all the bullishness and hype around fusion power, this is a major sticking point. If they can't find out how to replace the tritium, find a sustainable source of this rare fuel, then that's likely game over for the dream of fusion power anytime soon. There are other possible reactions, but the conditions to do that are even more difficult. There's a bit riding on making this work. You'd have to imagine that if ITER failed in proving this is a sustainable option for generating power, there would be many difficult questions asked about this multi-billion euro project. One thing I find really remarkable about ITER, other than the whole creating the reaction at the heart of the sun here on Earth thing, is that thousands of scientists from all around the world, Tom Welters included, are dedicating their lives' work to fusion energy generation. And yet we don't know whether the promise of fusion, a power source that's meant to be clean, green, self-sustaining, hopefully unharmful, will ever actually become a reality. I asked Dr. Welters what it's like working towards building an industry that might never exist. There is indeed a risk, but I have the chance to work with many very talented people. And actually I'm quite confident that at some point we will manage and let it be ITER that does it. And if it does come off, Dr. Tom Welters, our guide for today, believes ITER could completely transform how societies will be powered into the future. He believes this project in the peaceful countryside of Provence is our generation's best shot to realise the promise of fusion power. We have developed all the knowledge that is necessary to make the fusion reaction. And you could maybe say that it is this that we are after. All our members, they have full access to the intellectual property, the knowledge, the know-how. So you could say, once either is a success, they can, in principle, start building their own fusion power plant. This is the promise of ITER. Thanks, Carl. That was Carl Smith, science journalist at the ABC, reporting from the nuclear fusion reactor construction site at the ITER complex in Provence, France. 
Carl interviewed Dr. Tom Waters, scientific officer, and Vincent Hauser, coordinator, both from the ETA organization. This episode was produced and presented by Carl Smith and engineered by Hamish Camilleri. You can listen to more Strange Frontiers episodes on the ABC website, abc.net.au, or look for The Science Show on your favourite podcast app. Our Changing World is produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Ellen Rikers. Our website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And you can find our extensive back catalogue of hundreds of episodes exploring science, nature and health research in Aotearoa right there. You can also join our monthly newsletter and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at RNZ Science. Tēnākoe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai. Tō wiki.